Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going. We're, we're journeying towards Easter. And we're still going to do so because this is our message. This is the message of the gospel. And, and we began by talking about Jesus being a human. Jesus in his humanity. That oftentimes what we do is, is we divine Jesus out of his humanity. We say that Jesus was so divine that he wasn't a human. We, we hold him on this pedestal and, and oftentimes in times like these we would say he doesn't even get us, right? He doesn't understand. We talked about a few weeks ago how Jesus was certainly human. That he had to learn and he had to grow. He learned obedience, it says in the word. He was certainly human. And then he, we say this, that he, he suffered as a human. As we read the Gospels, we journey with him to the cross, we see his suffering was great and in many different ways. He suffered as a human. We've talked about how he suffered in temptation and we've talked about how uh, he suffered ridicule from his own family and what that must have felt like for him. In the end, we say this, he gets us. And he gets us. He understands beyond a shadow of a doubt. He understands us. Well, today we take a, a pretty, a dark step, actually. And this was planned before any of this broke out. Says he suffered betrayal. He suffered betrayal. Of course, the easy route when talking about Jesus being betrayed is to go to Peter, right? Let's talk about Peter's betrayal because it ends beautifully, and we'll go there a bit. But I just felt so, it was pressing on my heart to actually talk about Judas. Who Judas was, I wanted to get in his head a little bit and see who he was, why he betrayed Jesus, what was going on for him. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So in Matthew 26, we're going to be in 26 and 27. We're going to jump back to Matthew 5 at one point as well. But let's look at this. Starting at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And he asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The backstory is this. It says Judas was one of the 12. If you know the story of Jesus, we know that he called people to follow him, these 12 disciples. These disciples were the ones who were closest to him. They, they, they saw his ins and outs. They heard his heart. They saw him heal people. They heard his message. They were a part of his life more intimately than anybody else. And Judas, Iscariot, a betrayer, was one of them. Jesus at one point looked at Judas and said, Come follow me. Come follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. I'll, I want you to follow my ways as a disciple of mine. He was one of the twelve. Instead of, of trying to help Jesus in his ways, he actually looked for an opportunity to betray him. You see, the Israelites didn't really like a lot of Je what Jesus was doing. The, the chief priests and the rulers uh, were not 
fully liking what he was saying. And they actually looked for opportunities to imprison him and even kill him. And Judas thought he'd be a part of that and said, maybe I should do that too. Of course, the question is this. What's his motivation, right? Like what, what motivated Judas to want to do this? Well, we look in, in verses 14 through 16, and you can see a few things. You can see that he accepted money. He came and said, well, what will you give me? What will you give me if I give Jesus over to you? And maybe you felt like that. Maybe it was the tone. He's like, man, it's an opportunity, right? I'm going to make some, some big dough here. And he was counted out 30 pieces of silver. And I was questioning, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and one, one commentator said it could, could be as little as $21.60. I was like, I'm not sure where he got the number fully, but anyway, it's $21.60. But we see on the return of the money, what we'll read a little later is when Judas actually, he gives the money back out of guilt. And spoiler alert here. Anyway, uh, he gives the money back, and what they do with it is they buy a plot of land to help uh, those who come who are foreigners to be buried there so they're not tainting their own graves. So they at least could buy a plot of land for this sum of money. So maybe it wasn't a lot of money. Maybe he couldn't become uh, royalty or change his status at all. So maybe it, wasn't, maybe it wasn't the money. It doesn't seem to be a lot. He's the only other Judean, some commentators say, than Jesus. And, and so maybe he was jealous at the attention Jesus was getting. But I think the, the clearest thing that I can see and that we see is that Jesus maybe wasn't the Messiah that Judas had hoped for. I mean, his motivation isn't fully clear. We don't have it. We only have hints. But uh, this makes a little sense to me. In 1928, we could see the promise for Judas and the the disciples that they were going to rule with Jesus, a promise of a throne. And then in in chapter 21, what do we see in Jesus? He rides into Jerusalem where his throne was to be on a donkey. Not a horse, not with a military, but in a pretty humble way, on a donkey. And then, to add on top of that, you can, just, you can go back and read this story. He made every, all the leaders upset. Lots of people were angry with Jesus. Disciples were starting to fall away from him because um, he was saying some pretty hard things. Um, he was saying he was going to destroy the temple, the most holy place for the Jews, and build it up in three days. People took that quite literally in that moment and didn't like that, especially the leaders of the, of the Jewish world. And then there's lots of judgment talk that not all people are going to make it. Not all people follow and, and enter into eternity, and that's scared a lot of people off, as it probably does today. Maybe Judas felt that instead of the miracles, instead of the message of hope that Jesus was proclaiming, maybe he felt what some of the chief priests were feeling. One of the twists to that is this. Myron Augsburg actually says that, that maybe he was forcing Jesus to act. Listen to what he says. Being disappointed when it became clear that Jesus was not a violent revolutionary, Judas took things into his own hands to try to force Jesus to act with his amazing power. This may account for his being willing to sell his master for such a paltry sum. 
If his goal was to force Jesus to act for the defense of his kingly claims, any sum was adequate to get the wheels turning. So maybe he just wanted to get Jesus, like if I go to the chief priests, I turn him over, I'm just doing it because I want Jesus to be king, okay? And so they act, they try to kill him, and what does he do? Maybe Judas was thinking he's going to reign as king. He'll take him out, and it's going to be awesome. Maybe that's what he was thinking. We don't know fully what his motive was. But here's what we know next. Uh, Jesus brought his disciples together in this uh, upper room of sorts to have the Passover. It was a meal, a feast that the Israelites uh, took in every year uh, to, to resemble when uh, they were in Egypt. And when they were in Egypt, uh, to get out of Egypt, actually God sent plagues on Egypt. And one of the worst ones, of course, was when he killed the firstborn. The, the, the angel of death came over. And, and what God said to do is put, the, put blood over your doorstep and, and the angel will pass over you. And your children will live. Make sure everyone's in your house. <laughs> So that's what happened. So every year since that, that act got them out of slavery and into freedom and became a nation, uh, a pretty big nation. Uh, so that's what they were celebrating. They were remembered this year after year after year, mostly throughout their history. So Jesus called them all together for this, uh, this feast. And then when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. They kind of, rec- like they almost laid down as they were eating. And notice it's the twelve. The twelve people were there. Judas was there in the room. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. You could feel the tension in the room. (laughs) You can feel it as we read it. Jesus, in the midst, he announced that there was a betrayer. He actually just proclaimed it to his disciples. I'm going to be betrayed and it's going to be one of you guys, right? He, he, He announced it, he knew it, and he let it happen anyway. And I find that intriguing. Obviously, because it it needed to happen. It was the prophecies. It was written that this needed to happen for his purpose, for his mission, for the forgiveness of sins of the world. This isn't the first warning that Jesus gave his disciples. I think now they're starting to pay attention. It took a few warnings. Maybe like for us, right? Maybe it takes a few warnings in the midst of a a pandemic. But but maybe we get it eventually. So Jesus before had, had, had said in uh, 26 too that he was going to be handed over. The time has come for him to be handed over. In, in 20 verse 18, he said that we're going to be betrayed. These are all the same word. And in 17, 22, he said it earlier. I'm going to be betrayed. 
and handed over to death. He warned them. When they heard it this time, though, in the NIV it says they were very sad. (laughs) In the ESV it says they were very sorrowful. The word doesn't quite capture it. Listen to uh, uh, R.T. France, a scholar. He says, Very sorrowful is a rather weak translation for a phrase which contains Matthew's favorite word for violent emotion. Even shock. Even shock. They were in shock in this moment. I think we can relate a, a tiny bit right now to what this word really meant. So the, to the point where they all like were questioning, like, is it me? Like, I question you. They all questioned their own motives in that moment. Before this, they had no, no thoughts of betraying him, but all of a sudden, Jesus said it. So it's like, oh, maybe, maybe it's me. You know, is it I, Lord? And they go around the room and, and, and say, is it I, Lord? Maybe it's me. I don't know. I guess. Could be. I hope not. And then there's this phrase. The one who is dipped. The one who is dipped with me. Here's the reality. They've all actually been dipping with Jesus. It's a part of the meal. You're dipping in the same cups. Not really good. Not good practice right now, okay? To dip in the same cup. Just wait a little bit. And, uh, but this is what they were doing. Who could it have been? Well, in, in John's gospel, it's interesting to contrast that. So when you go, I think about John 13, where he's describing this. And, and as he describes it, when, he, when Jesus pronounced that I have, there's going to be a betrayal here, uh, Peter leans into John and John and says, John, would you just talk to Jesus? Like, ask him, who's, who's going to be? So John leans in secretly and they have a conversation. And it's like, Jesus, like, who's going to betray you? Like, we've already gone to the room. Is it I, Lord? But who is it? Come on, tell me. And so he leans in to tell him and, and Jesus tells him, it's the one I'm going to dip with right now. And then he dips with Judas. So we see that John really knew who it was. And he dips. So maybe it wasn't fully public, right? Maybe not everyone really understood what was going on. And we see this a little further on uh, as well because in the end, in John's account of this, he actually says that he tells Judas to go do what you need to do. This cryptic language that he uses. Go do what you need to do. And he gets up and he leaves at one point. And no one stops him. No one's opposed to him. And if, if it was you and I, I'm sure we'd be a little bit in uproar. Be like, no way. Because we see Peter, as well, later on, who says, no way. Like, no one's betraying you. I will cut somebody's ear off, which he does later, right? Uh, I, I'll protect you, kind of thing. So they obviously didn't really know that Judas, what he was about to do. Maybe they just thought he was going to pay for something and purchase something for the meal. Who knows? But what we know this is this. It says, as it is written, there's something that needed to happen. A lot of scholars point to Psalm 41.9 here. In Psalm 149, 41.9, I always say 149, 41.9 says this, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's verse 23 here in our chapter today. It's very similar. There's lots of prophecies about the Messiah, the suffering servant, the one who had to die for the sins of the world. And that's what he's saying. I have to fulfill these in these moments. He understood his mission and that he'd be betrayed. 
Did you notice the language when they said, Lord, is, is it I, Lord? Do you see what Judas actually said, though? In his conversation in chapter 26, it says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. A lot of commentators point that out and say, Something's going on here, right? It's pointing out something pretty significant. He's not calling Jesus Lord like the rest of them. He's calling him teacher. Very interesting. Maybe that feeds into the theory that he's not my Messiah. Maybe. Here's the reality, though. Even though Jesus announced his betrayer, even though he knew it would happen, and he let it happen anyway, it doesn't make it any less painful. We've gone into the head of Judas a little bit, but what about the heart of Jesus here? Can you sense it? Can you feel it a little? What kind of sorrow was he feeling? Well, we see in the garden then, Jesus and his disciples go to the garden to pray. In chapter 27, well, the 11 go to pray until this opportune time that after prayer, Jesus actually tells them in uh, verse 46, rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. So they're praying, they're getting up, and, and it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And then we see one of his disciples cutting off guy's ear doesn't make it any less painful that he already knew it. Jesus loved Judas. I can't believe that. I believe he loved him. Loved who he was and the contribution he brought to the team and just who he was. But he had to say this, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Man, it'd be better if he wasn't born. Can you sense Jesus' pain in that statement? You see here that he calls Judas friend. He still calls him friend. I think that's interesting. It's just like Psalm 41.9. It's the same thing. The word is friend is used there too. Friend. Didn't make it any less painful. A greeting of a kiss, which is meant to be this like peaceful passing, becomes a kiss of betrayal. Kiss of betrayal. I'm sure Jesus' heart broke. Judas regrets it in the end. This is the end of his story. It's not a happy end to his story. No, because he commits suicide in the end. But he comes back in Matthew 27, the first five verses. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had, been, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse 
and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. He brings back the bribe. He confesses his sin, and and the the guilt seizes his soul. I wonder what that physically looked like for him, that it seized him to the point where he ended his own life. What does it say about betrayal? Betrayal eats at the conscience, eats at our inner being. We're not made for it. My wife and I uh, have personally been betrayed at times, though not as significant as this, obviously, but uh, whether it be in ministry or just in our personal lives, we've experienced this, where people close to us started accusing us of something else totally altogether. We've had that in our lives, and it's painful. Maybe you get it. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've experienced the betrayal yourself. Maybe it's friends or, or family. The question I think we come to is this. How do we treat those who betray us? How do we treat those who betray us? If it is friends and family, what do we do? Do we, do we ghost them, right? Do we, do we give them a cold shoulder? Do we, do we enact some sort of revenge that I'm going to get you back later, right? What do we do? Maybe it's with politicians or institutions, that we feel betrayed by. Maybe in this moment. Maybe it's the church. Maybe there's been times, maybe it's now where you feel betrayed by the church. And maybe you saw that there was a live stream happening today and that maybe you'll just log in and you haven't been here in a while. (laughs) What does that mean? What does it feel like to be betrayed or, or sense that I've been betrayed? Do I go in outrage, a Twitter rant? Do I go silent? Do I act indifferently? Of course, this for Jesus was a a very special circumstance. But in Matthew 5, we we see Jesus teaching in how we handle our enemies. Uh, Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is proclaiming, this is what kingdom people look like. Like, if you're following me, this is what we look like. When God changes us and transforms our hearts. He says this, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. For them, at the, this point in the history, it was okay to hate your, hate your enemy. Actually, if you read the Psalms, you see that, that David often, and the psalmists, are condemning and, and asking God to kill their enemies over and over again, right? But Jesus is getting to the heart of it here. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is intriguing to me. That we're called to love our enemies. That we're called to Pray for those who persecute us. Especially in verse uh, uh, 45 there. 
Listen to this again, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. When we love our enemies, those who betray us, we're actually reflecting who God is. That's what it's saying. It's not saying here's a moral standard now and it's new and you need to like jump this up. He's saying, no, it's actually reflecting who God is, who we are becoming to love our enemies. Yes, Jesus loved Judas. We're called to do the same. As we're filled with his presence, with his spirit, and we're transformed some way, and somehow we, we come to this point of radically loving our enemies. I have a friend who had recently been praying for his enemy. This is uh, very recent that he posted on social media. It's been years. And he's been praying for this person diligently taking this very seriously in Matthew 5, to pray for them. Um, He noticed one day recently that during prayer, the anger inside his heart was gone for this person. It was gone. It felt like he could stop praying for his enemy already. And he was actually praising God through social media for that. What's going on there, right? There's something about praying for our enemies that's actually good for our souls as well. Because when we're, when we're betrayed, we often have this hurt feeling that becomes bitterness. Bitterness, and we'd rather have revenge than peace. And the bitterness eats away and it affects our lives. It affects every decision we make and it affects definitely how we treat that person. But when we begin to pray for them and and love them radically like that, and maybe it's a struggle in your prayer, right, where you have to hesitate from saying, God, strike them down, right? But like, like God, like, intervene in their lives. Let your love be shown to them and and change them and who they are. It's, It's not easy to get there. And you'll struggle with it. And you may, pre- you may pray some awful things. But as a close friend of mine, I see there's hope in what Jesus is calling us to here. Because what does it do when we begin to pray and love our enemies? It lets God be God and recognizes that I'm not. He's the Lord of my life. He directs my path. And he can handle my enemy. He's got them. He's got them. He knows what to do with them. Let him do his work. This doesn't mean we give a blind eye to injustice. That's where you could go in your minds. Is think, oh, well then, what about the injustice in the institutions and, and all these different things? And we could, we could say, well, well we've got to do something about it. And I say, oh, well, yes, of course. But it means we act in prayer with love for people It means we still come and bring them in prayer and act wisely. Like my phrase for today is to love radically in divine wisdom. Yes, I think we're called to love our enemies in this way. It's an active thing, too. It means we want to see justice, but not vengeful. Jesus gets that. He gets it. He gets what it is to be betrayed. He feels for you. 
I want to turn the tide a little bit, though. We always like to see ourselves as the victim and the hero of movies. But what if we are the betrayer? And maybe I should rephrase it actually and say this. In what ways are we the betrayer? How maybe have we betrayed Jesus? That's where I want to go today. We must address our actions and our motives of betrayal of others in Jesus and be responsible for our own selves. Have we sold out to the newest version of a Savior in our lives? Be it money, materials, hobbies, family, healthcare systems. What's our God? What do we, what do we serve the most and call our Lord and depend upon? No, sometimes really good things can become our God. Sometimes really bad things become our God, but sometimes the really good things in life can still become our God. We betray our, our, the one who we are called to follow. When Jesus says, come follow me, Sometimes we tend to walk in, in another direction. Something maybe a little shinier and more attractive in the moment. I don't know what it is. Maybe even in this time, we're tempted to make fear our God. We serve it and how we act, how we purchase, how we operate, how we condemn, how we criticize, how we... Man, how we, I don't know. Yeah, sometimes I think we need to really recognize and address our own hearts here. How am I betraying Jesus? Let's examine our hearts so we do not become Judas, but rather become Peter. Rather become Peter. Let me tell you now about Peter. Peter was in a similar boat, actually, to Judas. You think of Peter as like, maybe like one of the best disciples who followed Jesus so, so hard, but he's actually pretty rough around the edges, this fisherman. Uh, and Jesus actually predicted his betrayal personally. Okay? So he actually told, told Peter that you're going to betray me. Three times, actually, you're going to betray me. Well, he says deny me, but it's pretty similar here. The feeling that maybe would have been behind it. That he denied him. And he did three times. Outright, like people are asking him, are you associated with this man? He's like, no, no, I don't even know who this guy is. His accent was giving away that he was associated with Jesus and everything. He's like, no, 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 not me. I'm not, you know. Of course, Jesus told him that when the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to betray me three times. So when the rooster crowed, you know what he did? In the same, in, in our passage here today, okay, later on, in verse 75, it says he wept bitterly. Peter wept bitterly. We see Judas was seized with remorse and, and, and threw the money back and, and, and committed an awful act for himself. And then in the end, what, is, what, is, what does Peter do? He, he wept bitterly. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't mention Peter by name again. Very intriguing. So how do we know what happened with him? Of course, we have the Acts and some other Gospels. But, but for Matthew, how do we know? Well, at the end, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, another spoiler alert, right? When he's resurrected from the dead, the, he, he appears before the women, and the women are going to tell the disciples. And the disciples are going to go to this place where Jesus told them to go, and it says the 11. The 11 went. 
to where Jesus told them to go. Of course, we know where Judas is at this moment, and everyone else is there. This includes Peter. Peter followed Jesus even after he betrayed him. The beauty to the end of the story that you can go and read on your own today is John 21, verse 15 and following. It's this beautiful story, this beautiful moment between Jesus and Peter, where Peter is reinstated as like the rock where God would build his church on, reinstated as the one who would feed the sheep and the lambs, and and the church would begin really with Peter. It's a beautiful story you need to read. He was reinstated. He, He chose to follow Jesus in the midst of his guilt. This is the difference between the two. He turned back. And if you go to John 21, you'll see he calls him Lord. Yet again, he's his master. He let him reinstate him. I wonder for us today, as we begin to wrap up, so Roscoe, you can come. These two questions for us. Have you been betrayed? Have you felt that? Maybe recently. Someone in your life close to you has betrayed you. You know what that feels like. I want you to know this. Jesus gets it. He extends his arms to you. He says, I get it, and I love you, and I have you. And then he says this to you, love radically. Love your enemy back. Pray for them. The second thing is this. Do you sense you've been betraying Jesus? You think there's an area of your life, maybe, that you've been walking the other direction? Do you need to, re- be, do you need to be reinstated today? Come back. Follow him. Follow him yet again. Turn to him as Lord and be reinstated because that's what he'll do. He'll meet with you as he meets with Peter and reinstates him. He, 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 Jesus comes to Peter and actually tells him that he's, he loves him, that he, he reinstates him in his role. I love it. And he has that for you today as well. Let's turn and follow him today. I'm going to give you a moment of prayer today pray maybe even as your kids are running around you. That's probably my wife right now. But just begin to pray. In these two different ways, maybe you've been betrayed or maybe you're betraying him. Just come to him now. Jesus, we need you to uh, be with us. We turn to you and not away. Like Judas, we want to be like Peter. Peter. And turn to you.